I want to begin to open it up for you. We're going to read through the entirety of chapter 2, do our best to walk through it together, and then I hope begin to see who God is and understand what the writer of this book means when he describes in the 12 chapters of this book as life under the sun. Life under the sun is, is what this writer wants to explain to us and to describe to us. It's a different kind of book. It's not the kind of book that the rest of the Bible in which uh, God is speaking from beyond the sun to those of us under the sun, but it is a reflection of a guy who's had a hard, long life, but also we would argue is a successful life, and he's reflecting on the ways in which he has sought out fulfillment and contentment under the sun, that is, apart from God. So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2, the teacher, the Ecclesiastes, the preacher, begins to reflect in verse 1 of chapter 2, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what is good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desire, desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said into my heart, what happens to the fool will also happen to me. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So, 
I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. For that also is vanity and a striving after wind. I pray that as dark as these kinds of reflections may be, and as uncomfortable as it might call us to be, that we would begin to hear in these somber words a word of encouragement that comes from knowing a greater truth. What I think you see here over and over and over again, the theme that I think you'll hear us talk about over and over again is life is poof. That word vanity, hevel, is meant to be an onomatopoeia. It's meant to sound like it's meaning, like the, the breath that dissipates, the, the breath that in the winter in South Dakota you can see for a moment, but in the end it disappears. You can't, you can't really see it, you can't grasp it, it's gone. That's what life under the sun is like for the, for the writer of Ecclesiastes, this man Solomon. His wisdom, and he passes on to us, is that life under the sun is vanity. It's poof, it's It's gone. And that word vanity shows up over and over and over again. And what I want to lead you to begin to see is that as the Bible tells us where we've come from and where we're going, the meaning of life, the why for now, is reflected upon in the book of Ecclesiastes. And Solomon wants us to begin to see that as, as God reveals himself to us and, sh and shares with us that as we've come from God and we go to God, that the only meaning that can be found is life with God. Life apart from God. Finding contentment apart from God is impossible. Seeking that apart from what God has done for us and what God ultimately grants to us is vanity. It's meaningless. It's poof. It's like, as he says over and over and over again, specifically in this chapter, it's like trying to collect the wind. I used to collect baseball and football cards. Anybody collect wind? You thought of a way to collect wind? Where would you put it? How would you measure it? 
How would you label it? How would you sort through it? Did you get this? Do you get the, the meaninglessness of something like that? And the mindlessness of someone who would say that that's what they're trying to do? I'm collecting air. I'm collecting moving air, wind. And, and we would say that's, that's, that's vanity. What a waste. That is what life under the sun is. It's poof. And what I want to begin to open your eyes to, toward the end of our time together, we, we are be, we're going to, I think, begin to reflect upon some things that, that are deep, that, that, are, that are meaningful, and, and then because we love what Christ has done for us, we're going to end on this. So I want to give you a sense of where we're going today before we begin to show our work. We cannot, as I believe we're called to do, we cannot look to the finished work of Christ until we become displeased with our own work. I believe it will be impossible to look upon, to trust in, and rely upon what God has done for us in Jesus if we're constantly looking at what we're trying to do. You, you can't revel in, you can't find joy in the finished work of Jesus and, until you begin to find despair in your own work. You can't trust in His hand until you stop trying to control things with your own. That's where we want to land. I, I want to lead you through a systematic deconstruction of all the things that we typically try to do to find joy. And I want to show you that the theme that, that Solomon is trying to lead us to here is, is really pretty powerful, okay? And so, so I, I've, got to, I've got to nerd out with you for just a minute, all right? I don't know how excited you get about this kind of stuff. I'm going to show all my, my, my cards here. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a walking contradiction, right? I've got, to, I've, got, I've got an Ivy League education, but I love NASCAR, right? Okay, so there's, I, I like certain things, and this is where I get excited, so I'm just tolerate this for a minute. The, the rest of you are grammar nerds, and, and you nerd out with languages. Just join me for a minute. This is going to be fun, okay? Like, okay, so here we go. So the Hebrew alphabet not only has, um, has a way to, to give us sounds and words and meaningful thoughts, but it also doubles as, as the counting system, right? So that's the same, like, you know, Roman numerals, I mean, whoever wants to think about that other than next week when the Super Bowl rolls around, but like the, this, the, that, that, that sense in which the letters can serve as numbers, we, we have dispensed with because we have loved what the Arabic system has brought to us, right? So we love the Arabic number system. We keep our numbers and our letters separated, but not Hebrew. And, and Hebrew begins to, to show us some cool things. And so certain words often have a significant numerical value. So there are certain things that show up throughout the Bible like, and, and they're meant to be like the fingerprints of God's will. Like if something happens to you in threes and sevens or twelves, you, you heard these, right? There's, there's a sense in which like, oh, this is awesome, right? So, and now you believe this whether you believe it or not, right? So we're really excited right now that there's 50, 50 stars on the American flag because of what? Manifest destiny. There's a sense in which there's a fulfillment of destiny and this, these light, nice round numbers make us feel good about what's happened, right? This, so we do this in certain ways. Um, some of us are more OCD about it than others. So the, the, the Aleph Bet, the first two letters of, of the alphabet, right? That we Alpha, Beta, Greek, Aleph, get your, get, yeah, I know it's, I, uh, anyway, all right. Don't stick me in a locker. Just wait a second, okay? So here's what you'll find. The word Hevel is made up of 
three different consonants. So the, the vowels um, in, in the Hebrew language are actually come, they came back later to add, and they're little, they're little, um, they're little kind of translation and pronunciation markers that are added above and below the consonants. And so it really is a language of consonants, okay? And so what you'll find is the word hevel is, is over here. This looks a lot like an H, maybe. It doesn't. So this hey, and then bait, and then lamed, the havala, hevel, that word that I keep translating poof. I know, it's great. So hevel is, is, is this, right? We have this, an H basically, a V, and an L. And, and I want you to just count with me for just a moment. We'll use the big, we'll do it backwards, but like, so the L is, is substitute for a 30, right? Three tens. The H would be a, a 5, that's 35. And then the bait is a 2. So altogether, Never do math out loud. I always say this, but let's break the rule for fun. All together, one, two, three, let's say, what's 30 plus five plus two? Ready? One, two, three, go. Oh, yes. Never do math out loud. Never. No one knows what you don't know until you tell them, right? So, so this picture, hell, it's 37, okay? Do, do you want to guess how many times that word hevel shows up in the 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes? <laughs> you, you just, again, some of you nerds in the room are like, yes, that's so good. So, so the format and the structure of Ecclesiastes is difficult to discern. He's just rambling. And in fact, some of the things he says here in chapter 2, he's going to come back to in chapter 4 and chapter 6. And so there's a sense in when he just like sits back at the end of his life and lists off all of the things he's really frustrated about. But I don't want you to think that he's just simply like kind of only being morose, wherever he's going with this, he's doing it with some specific intent. And this word will show up an exact 37 times. Now, this is where doing math out loud gets really tricky, okay? Basically, you can kind of split the book of Ecclesiastes into two separate chunks. And one, the first verse all the way to chapter 6, verse 9, makes up the first particular part of this book and it teaches most about what's good and not good for human beings to do under the sun right you saw some of that right this is wise this is foolish it ends the same but i mean if you have to you might as well pick one even though the same fate comes to the end of this and then the second half from chapter six on talks about how we are unable ultimately to begin to fathom the depths of the mysteries of God's work. And so the last half is kind of confusing. It begins with a poem we read uh, two weeks ago, and it ends with a poem at the end. And here's what's fun. What that leaves is are 222 verses from beginning to end. And when the theme changes, what we can seem to find at chapter 6, verse 10, there's 111 verses after it and 111 verses before it. You ready? Because I already set you up for this. What's 111 divided by 37? Three. And so there are three equal parts of that random number 37 that make up the first half and the last half. So he has, whatever for whatever rambling he does, We're not meant to miss that the key point of life under the sun is that word, meaningless. To find hope this side of the sun, to look for hope this side of the sun is to find meaningless. 
And he begins to list all of the things that he tried to do, things that I would say the average person in our society would encourage you to try. Even just in the first couple of chapters, did you catch that? Or in the chapter we just read, he wants to find pleasure. He looks for laughter. He wants to find cheer with wine. He wants to understand what's foolish or folly. He wants to accomplish great works. He wants to enjoy food. He wants to amass treasure. He wants to have sex. He wants to achieve greatness. He wants to get everything he wants. He wants to work hard and play hard. These are things that we would all say you ought to go and spend your life trying to achieve. And what is the one thing, in case we miss it, 37 times throughout the entirety of the book, the theme that begins to tell its own story. It's onomatopoetic. Remember, it tells its own meaning by the way it sounds, but it also begins to give us a definition in its number of occurrence. All of those things. If you try to find your identity and satisfaction in those things, they're meaningless. It will be a waste. Now, why would I invite you into that? Like, why would, why would I invite you into such a, an arguably depressing thing to consider? It's because I want you to see, I want you to begin as we saw this last week, that to despair of the meaninglessness of life under the sun is the beginning of finding hope beyond the sun. And for this reason, I unashamedly, through the time in Ecclesiastes, I, I want to invite you in, into despair. I want to invite you into it. I want to invite you into that. Because I would argue that to look for satisfaction in anything other than the finished work of Christ is a path toward depression. If you want to find your hope in anything other than the finished and eternal value of the work of Christ, friend, the end result is depression. Been there? Because I know some of us are more inclined to be dark. Our senses of humor are morose. And we tend to be more kind of the depressive mood, like you're, you're Debbie Downer, you know who you are, right? And so here's what I would say is like that, you're teaching a lesson in that. And I, and I would encourage the rest of us to be invited into that kind of despair. Because the despair of life under the sun is the beginnings of faith and trust and joy in the life that God grants us from beyond the sun. So what Solomon does is he begins to unpack for us the things that he's accomplished and he wants us to think about how he's working them out in his mind. He's reflecting through them. Did you catch that? The very first verse is, is less like a thus saith the Lord, and it's more like a, a diary, I said in my heart. Did you catch that? Like he, he's talking to himself. And so he says, these are his, only, his own personal reflections. I would argue a few chapters from now, I think what you'll find is this is wearisome and it's actually quite self-centered. He's talking only about himself. We'll get to that. But he just, he's talking to himself and he challenges himself. All right, I'm gonna test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself with as much pleasure as you can possibly have. So he wants to, by means of reflection, by means of exalting all of his pursuits and all of the noble pursuits that our culture would exalt as well, begin to systematically deconstruct how meaningless they really are. Oh, you think that's a good idea? Hmm, it's actually meaningless. Oh, you think you're good at that? Not really, I'm actually better and I did it and it's meaningless. And there's this, we're kind of invited, I would argue, into thinking about this and reflecting on it. And so I have to confess, I'm not good at that. I don't know how good you are at math. I wanted to be good at math. I was kind of quick at it, but I could never really follow the rules of math uh, because every time you do something, uh, a math problem, you know what you have to do, right? Show your work. Show your work, right? And so, and this always frustrated me. I was like, all right, slowpoke, I can do it in my head. Why do I have to show my work? You want to watch me work? Well, watch, mm, there, it's done, okay? 
And this is an awful, spiteful attitude. Well, I want to invite you to, to think about it. This is what the book of Ecclesiastes is. He's like, I'm going to show my work. It's going to be messy. You're going to see some mistakes. You're going to see me think about some ideas that went down a rabbit trail that ended in destruction. But I want to encourage you, this, this, is, uh, this is the thought I want you to begin to think, uh, like kind of burn this in your head. I don't know if the, the brightness will work. Uh, this was a piece of work that my daughter, my oldest daughter, brought home. And, and, and in this, I'll read, it's a finding socks. And he had six socks and three socks and then four socks. And, and it says, solve the problem. Show your work, right? How did you arrive at this conclusion? And it's six plus three plus four equals 13, right? And my daughter... God help her. Did you see what you write? I used my brain. <laughs> I assure you, everything that my daughters will struggle with will be the fault of their father. Right? <laughs> and so I want to invite you into this, to something that Solomon is asking us to do, to, to, like, to really allow the deepest meditations of our own hearts, even as, I mean, I said don't do math out loud, but there's a sense in which Solomon is doing math out loud. And he's beginning to reflect on some things that if we were to be honest with ourselves, we don't want anyone to know about in our own heart. And if we were to be truthful, there are things that we would rather just say, let's not talk about it. I got the right answer. That's good enough. But what I would argue, and what I want to show you, is that as Solomon paints a picture of what it looks like to give people access to the brokenness of our own souls, he's inviting us into understanding the depths of the gospel at a deeper level. You see, I, I saw this even in my own family. Like I, I, I think I know what the finished product of, of what godliness looks like. I, I have great parents. Uh, my grandfather and grandmother, I mean, we had loving people, right? Um, but here's the problem. I don't know how they got there. And they were, frankly, if I were to speak honest, I think they're from a generation that isn't allowed to show that. And they were taught, don't show weakness. Don't, don't let people see where you struggle. And so I got to see the finished product of, oh, I have a phenomenal father and mother, but I just assumed that like just one day you arrive. But I don't know about you, that's not how that works, is it? And what I think we can do as we lead people towards Christ and Christ alone, one of the greatest introductions that we can have is to admit the despair and failure in everything else that we've tried apart from him. Essentially to show your work. We want to skip past it, but, but I would argue that what we find here is that we live beyond Eden. We are now separated from God. Genesis 1-6 through kind of shows that there's, there are curses that are easy for us to to convey. There are things that just don't work. Even people who are not Christians would agree something's wrong in the world, and they're endeavoring greatly, like us, to see if we can make it better. And so we all agree there's something broken, and now we would say, according to Solomon, we live in a meaningless, cursed existence, seeking lasting joy in things that will eventually let us down. This is the reality of life under the sun that Solomon unfolds in Ecclesiastes. We seek things that will ultimately leave us dissatisfied. But look, he walks through the list. He wanted pleasure, he wanted laughter, he wanted cheerfulness, he wanted to accomplish great things. He wanted everything that he could begin to imagine. And yet, I would argue, somewhere on that list, even though you might find yourself wanting that thing as well, he says, don't. You'll get it and it will be a waste. 
make sure you understand what Solomon says here and hear it in the backdrop of our culture. The worst thing that could happen to you is not failure. It might be success. Solomon isn't depressed because he failed at any of the endeavors in his life. He's, he's depressed because he succeeded at every single one. Our, our culture would argue that the worst thing that could happen to you is if you try really hard and fail. And Solomon says, no, the worst thing that could happen to you, if you want to feel really wrought out by the meaninglessness of existence, you try something and you succeed. You've been there, right? We do this all the time. We put our hope in things that we want to give us joy. Right? Remember that thing you got for Christmas about 10 years ago? Remember how awesome it was? And remember how quickly you didn't want it anymore? I, I remember the first time uh, Christmas, I, uh, we got a, a Sega CD, right? So my, we were kind of not wealthy people, so most of the games we got were leftovers from people who were done playing with them. I didn't play Nintendo until everyone was like already done with it. Um, and so then we got a Sega, and the first new game system I got was a Sega CD, right? And it was so awesome, so innovative, that none of you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> All right, it gets better. Uh, a couple years later, that's, no, that's not cool anymore. That's obsolete. And there was another thing that came out about the time that the PlayStation came out, um, and the Nintendo 64 came out, and the Sega Dreamcast, and it was called the Sega Saturn. And I got one also for Christmas. And you're so impressed by that that, again, you're looking at me blankly. Have you had something like that? Something that you really put a lot of time, money, or energy into, a lot of hope, and it's now obsolete? In fact, now if I were to ask you where that thing is, you probably don't know. Maybe it's in storage somewhere. Maybe. Maybe you left it at, like, your grandparents' house or your mom's house or something, and, like, she got so sick of it, she threw it away. But there's probably something, as you think back, you really thought that was the thing that was going to give you joy. And you'll notice that the meaninglessness of that thing isn't that you didn't get it, it's that you got it and you quickly became bored of it. So cool. Remember, not that many years ago, people would sleep out on the pavement for the newest iPhone. And now... I mean, where are we? We're the 7? We're the 6S? All right, guess what's coming next? Probably the 8. <laughs> Nostradamus, you're welcome. You know why I know that? Because there's nothing new under the sun. And the thing that gives you joy and meaning and excitement now, you will be bored of and want another. This is the way of the world. Remember that, remember that job that you swore would make you happy? Remember that thing you wanted? Remember that relationship that you swore would give you a sense of identity, give you joy? Remember that? Because I think what we find here is that it leaves us wanting more. Besides just the words that he gives us that kind of explain this, he gives us a pattern. Did you notice it's like a list of things he did? One of the first things that I would point out to you is, are you like that? Are you like Solomon? Are you always on to the next best thing? 
Are you always on to the next thing that you swear will make you happy? Here's the way that maybe the more painful way to begin to think about that. Do you regularly come across things that, you, you, that make you feel awkward or out of place because they used to be something in your life? Do you have a lot of friends around you from that church you used to be a part of? Do you have a lot of friends from your old job, the one that you swore once you got rid of it, you'd find happiness? Do you have a lot of ex-boyfriends slash girlfriends in your past? You might get this. Do you have a lot of stuff? This one hurts me. Do you have a lot of stuff in your attic or closet or basement or garage? For some of you, maybe your trunk. If you do, then you're like me, and that's where you've been collecting all of the things that you thought were going to help. And there's a constant reminder, constant. In our culture, it's everywhere, right? Like the average size of families, um, the average household size in America has cut less than half of what it used to be about 70 years ago, but the average square footage of the home in America is more than twice the size it was about 70 years ago. Fewer people, more space. Why? Because we have a lot of stuff. We have vast collections of things that we thought were going to be valuable, and now we don't know what to do with them. There are businesses, like secondhand stores, like uh, um, there, there's you know, goodwill. Businesses that thrive on our wasted and broken dreams. You know the biggest one? The privatization of landfills. You want to make money in America? Start a waste management company. You get this? Like, we don't even know what to do with all of the things we used to think were awesome. We don't even know how to collect all of the things that we used to think were great. Buy a computer. See how quickly it becomes obsolete. Right? Buy, buy something. Do, try to buy it. Try to achieve it. And it seems here that Solomon at each and every point says it won't work. Now, here's where you might be, be skeptical and say, well, well, he doesn't really know what I'm after. What I'm after is different. Let me introduce you to Solomon. Solomon knew how to throw a party. Solomon knew how to celebrate. And if you want to, you can follow me to 1 Kings. Remember, I told you the, the narrative of 1 Kings is the narrative of Solomon's life. And if you'll make your way to chapter 4, uh, beginning in verse 22. So he said, I wanted to test myself with partying, right? I wanted to test myself with this. Verse 22 of 1 Kings 4, it says, Solomon's provisions for one day was 30 cores of fine flour. That's, according to my footnotes, 220 liters. I don't know what that is, a lot. That's a lot of flour. I don't know what you use. We, we, we put it in a little, a little, a little bin next to, next to the oven, okay? So 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, and 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep besides the deer, the gazelles, the Robux. Oh, and the fat and fowl. That's my favorite. That's the chicken. It didn't even count. He's, I lost count of the chicken. We have so much chicken for my parties, I don't even know what to do with it. What's the last party you threw, right? That's all I want to know. I, I remember this. I, 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 I fight for terms, but I remember when we lived and we were in seminary and, uh, and everybody was poor and I used to just mock people because they would like invite you over, but they would basically say, bring your own party to the party. And they would say, hey, we're cooking out. And they would go, oh, by the way, we're just supplying the grill. We don't have any meat. Um, we don't have any sides. And you would just bring it. And you just bring your own, bring your own party to the party. And I get really excited when, when, like, when we could finally throw a party. And like, I could just, people would say, hey, can I bring anything? And we would just be like, no, 
as opposed to, I guess, bring everything. Bring everything you need. So I, I get excited about a big party. I get excited about this, right? I get excited when I can find some meat or something, something I can enjoy. Have you ever in your life experienced this kind of a meal? Have you ever provided this? Have you ever been to this kind of a party? Oh, by the way, I don't know if you noticed, maybe if you did, did you go to one uh, the next day also? Because that was provision for just one day. And this is what we begin to see. If you, this is, I mean, this really is Solomon saying, nana, nana, boo, boo, I'm better than you. And oh, by the way, I did it better and it still didn't satisfy. It still didn't give meaning. And there's a sadness that overtakes him. This is what we're invited to begin to experience ourselves. And this sadness is at least two different things. And I would argue that the sadness we tend to feel in the world when we begin to think about how limited our life is and the sadness that you're now feeling at the possibility that what you're currently chasing isn't actually going to satisfy you at least has two different parts. The first part is this. We begin to feel sad and we begin to hate life because more than anything else, we were tempted to believe that what we were chasing was really going to satisfy us. And the first sadness we feel is that we don't get to keep it. The second sadness we feel, I think, is also a form of praise. It's a kind of sadness that comes when you lost something that was good. When my wife and I were dating long distance, something I don't recommend to anyone, um, I saw a new side of myself, right? And I would, every time we would say goodbye, um, I mean, you know, like five days, uh, like weekend to weekend, uh, I would cry. Like it was, I mean, I didn't cry in front of her. Obviously, I got in the car <laughs> and drove while crying. That's not true at all. I cry at Cinderella now. It's just, this is who I am, okay? <laughs> and that despair of saying goodbye, it's kind of a little bit of both, right? You're sad because it has to come to an end. But you're also sad because there was this moment where life under the sun was really enjoyable. And the sadness that he invites us into is actually something that may be counterintuitive, but it's something that's helpful. There's at least one satisfying thing that this helps me with, right? It, this means that, at, at the very least, Solomon gives us tips to how to deal with a crying preacher, a weeping and a broken preacher. Let me show you what this means. Like, it's not what you expect. Like, you go to the, 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 like a Bible bookstore, like a Christian bookstore, well, the Bibles are in the back and the decorations are in the front. You know what I'm talking about. So you go there and if you, you, you like ask the employee, hey, how are you doing? They're going to say something like, I'm blessed. Ooh, so blessed. Right? That's what you expect. Maybe you go to Chick-fil-A and they bring you a delicious chicken sandwich. Frankly, the spicy chicken combo at Wendy's is better. That's just me. I'm just saying that. But when you say thank you at Chick-fil-A, don't scowl at me. When you say thank you at Chick-fil-A, they say what? My pleasure. It's what you expect. And yet we come to Solomon, and imagine if you went to the Christian bookstore and you were like, hey, how are you doing today? And they said, I hate my life. How's, how's your week? Meaningless. Meaningless. It'd mess you up, right? You go to Chick-fil-A, get that chicken sandwich. Hey, thank you. And they say, there's no point. 
There's no point. You get it? It, it, would, it would break character. It would be something you don't expect. And what I at least think that Solomon does here is he invites us to begin to think about how we deal with, how we cope with this kind of thing. At the very least, it begins to train us of how to deal with weeping from the pulpit. Because even now, some of you are sitting and you're like, I thought you were going to make me feel better, Jonathan. And when Solomon comes along and he says that the truth that God grants us is sometimes more deep and sobering and painful than it is joyful at first. It may feel like something's being ripped from you before you actually feel like you've been given something. And you're inclined to think, well, this, this preacher doesn't deserve a pulpit. How about we tune into something that's much more pleasing to the ear? Something that's much more uplifting. You get it? You get what he's inviting us into? As he shows us his work, as he begins to reflect on all the things that he has done that ultimately did not grant him any sense of pleasure, not any sense of lasting joy, until finally he concludes, and he says at the very end of chapter 2, the summary for the first half of the book, I would argue, verse 24 says, there's nothing better for a person to do than he should eat, drink, and find enjoyment in his toil. Because this also, I found, was actually from the hand of God. For apart from him, who could even eat or have enjoyment? Apart from him, who could even enjoy life? If God doesn't do something, then the weight of this despair will crush us and destroy us. It's a beautiful thing. He asks us to look away from our own work and look to God. The two tests I would throw at you at this is just, if you don't think that's right, if you still, and this is the hardest part of my job, is even as I say this, some of you are still going to learn the hard way. You really still think you can find your joy elsewhere. And the minute you walk out of this building, you're going to put all your time and effort into that. And I love you, and I'm going to watch that train wreck happen, probably in slow motion. I love you enough to say that it's actually a good thing when that despair hits. It might actually be a good thing that your hope and trust in that thing fails because then you might be open to the greater thing that God has done for us in Jesus. I mean, how's that working for you? How's it working for you? Finding your joy and satisfaction in your job. How's that working for you? You want to do it forever, don't you? Ever, never, never, never. Maybe even think about working seven days a week. How's that working for you? How much joy are you getting from it? How's that, how's that working for you finding your identity in, in relationships? How's that working for you finding your joy in dating or in marriage? How's that working for you? How satisfied is that leaving you? Is the veil maybe piece by piece being pulled off your eyes? And the freedom that comes realizing that like even the joy that God grants us is at least in some sense like only a picture of the greater joy that he wants to give us? The second thing that I think we see here is that he tests us with something, and I want to land on this. He essentially says that what he's done is better, and yet it left him thirsting for more. And I would say that's probably the same for you too. It may even be the same for me. He kind of mocks all the stuff that we're proud of, doesn't he? Oh, you got, you got brisket $2.99 a pound at Fairway. Good for you. Good deal. 
Yeah, we slaughtered 20 cows just today. Right? How cute. This is what we're doing today. He even kind of points out to me some things. Right? So even good things can have a way of robbing us of a, an eternal joy. Oh, oh, you want to plant a church? Oh, that's cute. One time I built a building. We called it the Holy of Holies, and God showed up. That's cute. Get it? Oh, you, oh that thing you posted on Pinterest, that's adorable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I built things out of gold, bronze, cedar, and people from miles around came to admire my work. Right? Oh, your garden is adorable. I like it. That's cute. I, I actually plant forests and parks. People pay to come and visit my garden. Still, it's meaningless. Oh, you like your car? You really like it? You're going to wash your car today? That's adorable. I have 1,400 chariots. 1,400 chariots. I can ride in a new, I could, I can be, I could be on a new, in a new set of wheels every single day for a few years before I even get in one I've ridden before. Oh, you like your house? That's adorable. This guy, this guy had a 20,000 square foot house, conservatively. That's the one we know of. Oh, you, oh, you bought your girlfriend a, a diamond. That's cute. Yeah, I built, uh, I built palaces and houses for all of my 1,000 women that I'm now engaged with. Get it? And every single moment at the end of it, he says, that's, that's meaningless. It didn't give me joy. And since I know that it won't give me joy, will you listen to me when I say that it won't give you joy either? And as you begin to think on this, and as I invite you into despair, you may hate me for it, but here, here's what I think. When you begin to realize the worthlessness or at least the difficulty of your own work, then you are ready to look at his. You see, when we begin to actually despair of these things that we find to be meaningless under the sun, we begin to realize how gracious it is that God sent his son across the sun. And one of the worst things that can happen is that as we find our own meaning and joy in our own work, we miss the finished work of Christ. So in just a moment, we're going to wrap up. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper communion together. And someone is going to declare a mystery to you. And I want to read to you in the New Testament, how it was practiced in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The Apostle Paul speaks to this church that probably put their hope and trust in many different things. And he says that when you get together, you actually might be doing more damage than good. But in the end, I just want to pass on to you a word of good news. Verse 23, he says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup. And after supper, he said, this cup is a new covenant that is in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of you and me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim what? Your own deeds, your own achievement? He says, no, every time you do this, you proclaim the Lord has done something. The Lord has died in my place. 
And so he says, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, manner is actually guilty concerning that body and blood. And so therefore let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on themselves. So here's what I want to identify, a couple things. We celebrate the Lord's Supper together. In a few minutes, we're going to, we're going to begin to, I would offer a time of, of reflection to take these words seriously, to begin to examine ourselves, and to begin to examine who we are and what we have done. And then ushers are going to take up an offering, and after that, we're going to stand up and sing. And as we do that, one by one, as you're ready, make your way to the back, and someone is going to declare a mystery to you. Someone is going to declare a mystery And if you come to that table with despair of your own work, if you come to the table with failures of your own, as you show your own work and and you find that what you bring to the table is actually pain and dissatisfaction, friend, you are in a great and hungry spot to look away from your own work and see and hear the finished work of Jesus on your behalf. And you will be invited to declare in your participation a mystery. And taking the bread that's broken, we recall the body that was broken on our behalf. And we dip it into the juice and thereby drinking and taking part of the blood that was poured out on your behalf and mine. In a moment, we declare a mystery that I think Solomon offers. That to begin to experience failure on our own part for the things that we have tried sets the stage for trusting and finding our identity in the thing that he has done for us. Oh, friend, would you begin to allow that despair to creep over you? Would you turn away from your own work and your own goods? And would you look at the finished and completed accomplishment of Jesus Christ on your behalf? For in it there is much greater, even eternal joy. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your goodness. Uh, We thank you for your mercy. Uh, We thank you for your accomplished work. If there's some in this room, uh, maybe that uh, this still is a mystery, this thing called Christianity just seems crazy. I'm so glad they're here. I thank you for bringing them here. But would they begin to contemplate the possibility that even, even to open our eyes even to begin to open our own minds to the possibility that you have done something great for us is the beginning of joy? Would you, for the rest of us in this room, maybe we need to repent of putting our own trust and hope in our own work, in our own ability. Uh, Would you begin to allow this next bit of time as we worship and as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, would you begin to open our hearts to despair? to despair of our own attempts at finding and accomplishing joy? Would we dispense with this? Would we begin to even repent of this? Maybe for some of us, as we examine our own hearts, maybe the brave thing to do is to actually just not take the Lord's Supper today. Maybe maybe the worst thing we could do is to drink condemnation and try to baptize something that ultimately is our own effort. But, But would you begin to open our eyes to the possibility that the thing on display isn't our sin and our failure, but instead the thing on display is your good and gracious gift in Jesus. As we declare this mystery to one another, may it stir faith in our own hearts and shape us 
to put our trust in the things not that we can see, but in the finished and completed and final work of your death and resurrection on our behalf. Jesus, only you can do this. Amen.